The world needs to limit the rise in average global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We are a few short months away from the world's biggest climate summit since Paris. I'm talking about COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, where countries are hopefully going to be agreeing on the mechanisms for achieving the Paris Agreement goals and explaining the actions they'll be taking to help limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we thought we would delve deeper and find out what's being done when it comes to some of the key issues. The transformation of the energy system, the role of nature and the investment needed. And asking, is everyone involved doing enough? Today on the Energy Podcast, the world and 1.5 degrees Celsius. What will it take to transform the energy system? Hello, I'm Julia Streets, entrepreneur, advisor and broadcaster, and your host for this special series, putting the big questions to people in the know when it comes to tackling climate change. And today we're talking about the transformation of the energy system. Now, earlier this year, the International Energy Agency made waves when it published a report into how the world can reach net zero emissions by 2050. Part of their overall assessment suggested no new oil and gas exploration beyond projects committed in 2021 would be a really key part of achieving 1.5. So who better to unpick this topic than two experts from organisations who spend much of their time talking about solutions to this huge and complex topic. Meshtir Burstorfer is the Director of Sustainability, Technology and Outlooks at the International Energy Agency. She's an expert in energy sustainability and climate change policy and one of the authors of that IEA report. And she's joined by Dr. Malika Ishwaran, who is Shell's Chief Economist and also part of Shell's Scenarios team, which explores plausible visions of the future energy system. So I can't wait to get into this discussion. So let's jump straight into the more ambitious goal set at the Paris Agreement, the one limiting the average global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade this century. In the IEA's roadmap called Net Zero by 2050, it sets out an energy system that is 20% smaller than today's, yet delivers two and a half times as much gross domestic product to a planet that is predicted to be populated by two billion more people. So I'm really intrigued. How will that work? Meshtil, let's hear your thoughts. Thank you, Julia. I think our Net Zero report is really a very ambitious but feasible pathway for the whole world to become net zero by 2050. But we have more than 400 milestones from now, 2021, 25, 30, 40, 50, which we have to follow. And that means a really radical transformation of our global economy, which is now dominated by fossil fuel. But in the future, in 2050, it should be predominantly by renewables, energy like solar and wind or any other low carbon technology. So this transformation needs everyone on board. As I said, it's radical and we need companies, we need stakeholders, we need governments, we need international collaboration. And that's one of our strengths at the IEA. But we need really that everyone is on board and we invest heavily. 
So one key thing, coming back to your question, is energy efficiency and material efficiency. We need to consume less energy and we need to consume it much more efficiently, also our materials. Otherwise, we won't achieve it. Um, Malika, can I turn to you at this point? I'd love to hear your, your thoughts in, in reflection for what you've just heard. Thank you, Julia, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, as you said, I'm a member of the Shell Scenarios team. And so really looking and exploring these sort of trends and developing long-term outlooks is, is really our bread and butter. Uh, but before I get into that, just to say that our scenarios are not forecasts. Um, they're not uh, sort of predictions of the future, uh, and, and but they are set out sort of visions of what the future might look like. So to get our heads around what the kinds of changes we might see and what that might result in down the, down the line. Energy efficiency is a core part of this story. But I must say that I would also broaden this to saying energy efficiency alone is not going to get you to net zero emissions. You need to transform the system itself. You need to transform what type of energy is being supplied, what type of energy is being consumed. Uh, and really, the transformation is around electrification with low-carbon electrons, as we call it, from renewables or nuclear, low-carbon molecules like hydrogen or uh, biofuels. And also then for those uh, sectors where emissions, we continue to use fossils and emissions are really difficult or expensive to, to remove, you need technologies like carbon capture and storage uh, to, to then remove those emissions. So I think it's a combination. You need a number of levers to be pulled, uh, including uh, energy efficiency in order to achieve the world's uh, climate goals. So I wonder then if we could pick up on one of those levers, which is, as you said, it's about demand. And Meshdeel, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, just particularly through the lens of consumer demand. And of course, a really key part of that, and I know that was also picked up in your net zero report, pointing to the need for significant changes in consumer behaviour. But I can't help but wonder, you know, getting consumers to change their behaviour is quite a challenge. You know, is that realistic, particularly in this current time frame? Yes, I think we have seen last year, 2020, how a big crisis like COVID-19 can change consumer behavior. I think replacing our car trips with walking, cycling or public transport, cooling is a huge part. And if we can stop the cooling temperature to 23, 24 degrees, this is another example where we can save energy, all of us. Yeah. And, and Malika, you were talking there about a number of different levers. And, and so in addition to that, there's, there's a governmental sort of point of view. There's a policy sort of perspective as well. And, and I just want to kind of reference uh, a report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And in this, it underlined the urgency of transforming the global energy system. So it's, it's clearly very much appreciated. But my question is, like, who should be leading this? So you need to have governments setting up enabling policy frameworks that allow low carbon energy to develop and scale up. You need businesses innovating in terms of products and services they provide in terms of business models to support that. And then you need consumers coming in and, and choosing, making conscious choice about uh, choosing the low carbon alternative and providing that pull, if you like, uh, from the demand side. So you need all of these sort of happening, uh, you know, sort of simultaneously. And I, sh I should say that COP26 is a real moment in time uh, to sort of coalesce and crystallize uh, sort of government business actions to then drive this uh, progress. Yes, and, and Meshtil, you were mentioning in your opening remarks about the report having 400 different kind of key points to it, if you like, and I suspect behind them were many, many, many more. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts about who should be driving this collaborative change. 
So the good news is that more than uh, governments representing more than 70% of GDP and emissions have done net zero pledges. So we have analyzed them. So most of them by 2050, some earlier, China by 2060. But it's also very, very clear that this is not enough to bring us to net zero. And there's an absolutely urgency if we look at this decade, which is the focus of our net zero by 2050 roadmap. So this decade from now to 2030 is absolutely crucial. We need to start now. And then these pledges, which we say is, uh, needs to be implemented. And if we look closer, which will be done also in the upcoming World Energy Outlook, that only roughly one quarter of these net zero pledges are really substantial and have implementation measures, like the EU just uh, uh, proposed the Fit for 55 package, the US and others. So in that sense, COP will be a milestone, uh, COP26 in Glasgow, and we need to bring everyone together. And, and we talked earlier about... Um the consumer reality. We've talked about the governmental and the kind of the macro reality. I'd love to bring it back if we may to a sort of a corporate reality as well. And there was a recent court ruling in the Netherlands that said that RDS PLC must reduce the Shell Group's CO2 emissions from its own operations, but also making significant best efforts to reduce the emissions of its suppliers and customers as well. And this is all net 45% by 2030. That's, a, you know, to bring this into stark reality as well, when compared with 2019 levels. Now, Malika, I know that Shell has said that it will rise to the challenge and also has confirmed it will be appealing this decision. I'd love to get your thoughts. And, and can you just explain a bit more about this? Yes, of course. So again, it's, uh, the ruling is, is really interesting in the sense that it's about speeding up. Uh, the pace of action that we're taking. Now, as you said, uh, the ruling covers what we would call our emissions, uh, which is scope one, as we call them, uh, as well as the emissions from our suppliers, which is scope two, and then also of our customers and users of energy, which is scope three. Now, scope three really is 90% or so or more of our emissions. So making uh, sort of inroads in towards this target really requires that collaborative approach uh, where you have, it's not just about us changing the supply, but it's also about uh, working with governments to set up those policy frameworks that encourage uh, the move towards low carbon energy. Because without sort of building in that collaborative approach, you sort of run the risk of the scope three emissions just being moved around from one supplier to the other. I have to say, it's been a fantastic conversation. If you think about how much we've covered in a really, really short period of time. But I do now want to give it a short, uh, a shot. So I do now want to give a bit of a shout out to our listeners as well and to hear from both of you about if there was one thing that we as individuals could do that would make the biggest difference, what might that be? Malika, let me come to you first of all. So again, it's about thinking and making thoughtful choices and rewarding those businesses that are being proactive and front-footed in, in, in making progress in the energy transition, rewarding them uh, with your choices as a consumer. And then over time, what you'd hope is that this then those low-carbon offerings just become the norm in, in the sector. And, and Meshtil, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but if there were one thing individuals could do. So I think working in Shell, working in IEA, working in, in the government, we can also have our voice heard. The youth did it, and I think it triggered quite a, a movement, but uh, all of us can contribute to that and do what we can uh, to, to make that happen. 
Wonderful. Listen, Mesh Dil Vershtova and Malika Ishwaran, thank you so much for joining me today. And to all our listeners, if you want to listen to the rest of the series where I'll be putting the big questions to industry leaders in sustainable finance and biodiversity, then just search for the Energy Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Streets. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. You can find The Energy Podcast on all major providers. Follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured, not Shell or its affiliates. Thank you for listening and goodbye.